Hello, and welcome to another edition of the International Writers Collective Masterclass Series. In each masterclass, recorded live in Amsterdam, working writers talk tips, tricks, and techniques with a focus on a single novel, short story, or handful of poems. In this edition, we speak with award-winning Indian novelist Manu Joseph. His debut novel, Serious Men, won the Penn Open Book Award, and the Penn jury described him as that rare bird who can wildly entertain the reader as forcefully as he moves them. We look at his latest novel, Miss Layla, Armed and Dangerous, and talk about the art of satire, getting political in your writing, the value of humor, the challenges of writing from the point of view of characters very different than yourself, and more. Before we start, how many people have actually read the book? Okay. How many people have at least started it? Okay, so a few people who've not yet read it will try to avoid spoilers, but we can't make any promises. For those of who haven't read the book, Manu, maybe you could give us a short summary? Summary of the book? Yes. Well. <laughs> a synopsis. Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, rather not, because uh, I, I think that'll come out in the... Okay in the course of uh, our conversation, but I can give a summary of the intent uh, okay. uh, behind it, you know, because the story is... Uh, after the first two novels, I, uh, I was very bored of writing men. Uh, I could uh, write a particular kind of a man with a certain uh, uh, sexual humor and uh, what is very easily called darkness in a mm. book. If a guy is having a particular kind of a thought, it is called, that it is, it is uh, said to be dark. Mm. If a woman is having a, those thoughts, I think it could be called suicidal. <laughs> <laughs> so this dark, oh yeah, maybe there's some darkness, but I'm not, I'm actually not capable of darkness. In fact, I'm afraid of, uh, I'm an extremely happy person. This is one of my problems as a writer. And uh, I feel that what I, I also understand the darkness that people talk about because you can you can think about a few things which are not uh, very pleasant or you can be very extremely accurate about or try to be accurate about the human condition and that will seem very dark. But I didn't want to do any of this for my third novel because I mean I thought that's something I will do later in my life. But I, w I wanted to quickly document a particular kind of uh, two kinds of women, uh, young women, and uh, of course there was some political circus which was going on in my country, which was that whole Harry Potter being relived with Lord Voldemort and uh, and Harry Potter, who's a dad, and and the good versus bad, evil, becoming actually a battle between two psychiatric conditions. And uh, I wanted to document uh, all that too. And actually, actually, I, I wanted to avoid this political part because as a journalist, I had started hating uh, news because it's a fabrication of journalists most of the time. But I could not escape uh, the politics of my time. It's like being in America when Trump was rising and trying to be a novelist and trying not to be political. It was, you know, you, I was in that uh, space. But chiefly, I wanted to document a particular kind of a, a young girl, like in this case, it's a 19-year-old girl, but a lot of, lots of people in India who take care of their families, they're unsung, they're not very posh. You never 
get to know what they're thinking and they're usually either the maids or they, they do all kinds of other kinds of professions. And I also felt that in all of literature and I think in every form of art, the most underrated relationship is that of sibling. Everybody talks about lovers and parents. I don't think there's enough discussion about the relationship between siblings. So I, I, these were the things, for some reason, I wanted to try everything I've not tried before because it was so difficult for me earlier. I didn't have the technique to write. And of course, I always, uh, I'm afraid of boring people. I'm sure I end up doing it because uh, every, you know, all our fears do come true. But uh, I, I dislike the attitude of writers where they feel that this reaching out process is not important. Um, but I always found it extremely important to also reach out to the readers and that is where the story comes in. I, mean, I have a lot of fun. The only fun for me in writing is the story. Everything else is a lot of suffering. So uh, this is the synopsis of where the novel began. These are the things which are going on in my head uh, to start this novel. I took uh, a long time. I took one and a half years to start because I wanted the pace also. Uh, I wanted a story which had pace. So I, I suppose this is how a novel begins. Uh, so yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, you've, you've brought up so many things that I, <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about in more yeah. depth there, but maybe just going back a little bit and making that transition from being a journalist to being a novelist yes. and what that was like and, you know, what are, what are the things that you had to learn and what are the skills that you already had that you could then apply to this new, to this new form? Yeah. I attempted my first novel when I was 21, where I used to write story, short stories before that. I'm sure they're all pretty bad. When, the 20, when I was 21 too, I showed it to my girlfriend and she took five days to respond, uh, so I thought it was bad. And uh, I said, no, no, don't tell me anything. I don't want to hear. I know it's bad. So actually, even now, I don't know what it was. <laughs> so now I you know, look back, I think maybe I should have just shut up. Maybe she was just busy. Uh, but I did give it up. So I was always trying. and I, uh, 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 So as a journalist, uh, writing fiction was, was, was the liberation. What, was what, when I worked in Times of India for three and a half years, that's what kept me alive. When you're in a newspaper office, you uh, need some things to keep you alive on some days, you know. But the greatest contribution of journalism is that you meet people you wouldn't meet otherwise. As a, as a novelist, you just don't meet anybody. You're, you're locked up in your house <laughs> and you are also losing the few relationships that you have. <laughs> and, uh, but as a journalist, I'm just sitting with the billionaire, I'm like getting bored of him. Mm. And then it just struck me that he's trying to buy a mobile phone. When he was sitting with me, he was trying to, this billionaire. So I thought, now wait a minute, now how many people have the opportunity to witness how a billionaire buys a mobile phone? <laughs> At that time he was going for Blackberry and the entire Blackberry office had come, come to meet him mm. to sell him one phone. And I told him you should buy Apple. I mean, what's, mm. what's wrong with you? 
it's like who buys blackberries you know it was the last of the, i think it was the it was the last of the blackberries which of course i sabotaged and i think he eventually buy bought an apple but then maybe i should not uh, maybe journalists tend to undermine the opportunities that they have in terms of just meeting uh, all kinds of people i have uh, uh, i met murderers and i met uh, those uh, fundamentalists I've met people who threatened to chop me and kind of both of us started giggling. You know, all kind of situations, which are very novelistic situations. But if I put you, if I put those situations in a novel, you'll think it's a very bad novel because it's melodramatic. And I am in a melodramatic country. And the contribution of journalism is that do not be ashamed of your country's melodrama. You know, it is not only a daughter's mom in india who is melodramatic mm. everybody is melodramatic you know so it is uh, and and the conflict is that in western by western literary standards there's a great importance given to subtlety mm. and i'm from a country where subtlety is i mean subtlety is only for western novels really so uh, as a journalist i i told myself that this, as long as this melodrama is is factual uh, and it is there i will write that you know mm. i will not try to uh, be subtle about culture i think you should never be subtle about gender and culture these two things uh, i mean you can but you you'll be doomed you know mm. you'll just be wasting a lot of months trying to be the second thing is as a journalist you are uh, given a certain you have a certain false confidence to do a lot of things even though you know it's a false confidence you end up having it where if someone says now your deadline is five I mean, it's tonight and you need to finish 5000 words i will do it it's my training and i know a lot of novelists who have not had the training of writing now i think they uh, when they are stuck they are very badly stuck they don't know how to get out of it you know journalism teaches you a few techniques to get out of some situations that you end up in when you're writing like for example write badly you know just start nobody is looking just write badly it's okay uh you can delete it later but you start the second paragraph might be good you know though even in journalism like in a novel the first paragraph is extremely important it sets up a lot of things so these are the things journalism mm-hmm. contributed but otherwise every in every other aspect i had to escape from journalism what uh, it's uh, uh, i i uh, like for example it's whole uh, the farce of substantiation how journalism tries to substantiate things is farcical you know uh, it's claimed that it is very factual is completely uh, not true like for example i find uh, uh that's what as uh, esoteric as this might sound i think there is a distinction between facts and truth and uh, dealing with facts is 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 what journalism tries it's an argument an argument is a reverse engineering of uh a bias you already have um so you're never as a journalist you're never to uh Oh, as a journalist, you're supposed to notice, and you don't have to really overrate facts, uh, and that really helps you as a novelist. 
uh, where you you know that uh, every thought is important. You don't need to substantiate. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, except for magic realism, I have a problem with magic realism. Mm -hmm. That that's a different subject. So not a Sam and Rushdie fan, <laughs> then, are you? Well, no, not really. I'm not. Uh, uh, well, I can, I can, though one of my favorite writers is Marquess, and I can actually defend him. Mm. And, and I think he's, uh, this tag of magic realism is wrongly attributed to Marquess, who, by the way, was a hack. It was a, he was a reporter. Mm. You know, he was a foreign correspondent in several countries. So I think I know what he was trying to do. So, uh, so and, and the novel can deal straight away with truths without the farce of trying to deal with facts. Hmm. Without the farce of uh, uh, an argument and substantiation and all those kind of things, you can make a statement which can strike straight into your heart. Hmm. And the moment you read that line, you know it's true as a reader. I know there's no so various other processes are not required in a novel. So, uh, yeah, these are the distinctions. So, in some cases, as a journalist, it's uh, you use the training. The greatest contribution, as I said, is hmm. the is the training to write. It is not something very abstract for me. Mm. You know, it is like you've written so much. Of course, a lot of bad stuff too, mm -hmm. but that trains you to to be never too uh, daunted by the process of writing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important, this idea that, you know, in order to write well, you have to be able to write badly. And that's something that so many beginning writers, I think, struggle with um, to just let themselves to just let themselves write um, so they, I think they do end up also writing badly so I think yes. the, I, I, I think the, the second most important uh, uh, training is to know when you're writing badly which is actually very difficult because yes. writing is a confidence game and I, a lot of writers get into the self-loathing thing which is like false humility right mm -hmm. it's like Oh, I'm so bad. They, I don't think they really mean that. Or they feel that having articulated uh, their badness, they mm. feel that maybe uh, they're not, uh, the universe is going to tell them, oh, no, it's not so bad. <laughs> but that doesn't happen, you know. So uh, I, I feel that a, that is where, that is a more complex uh, thing mm. to know when you're writing badly. Because uh, that can't come only by training. Because uh, because you're not, I mean, are you ba writing badly for 30 years that <laughs> you are trained well to know when you're writing badly? So, so that is more of an instinct. I think, in fact, when we talk about talent in writing, I think here, I think intuition, instinct, and the ability to know when you have written uh, maybe something dishonest or maybe something overwritten, okay? Those are the things. When do you know? How do you know mm -hmm. these things? Actually, now that I'm talking to you, I feel there could be some cues which you can develop. You know, where, like for example, I know that I always write badly when I write a bit too much about my own life, mm. and I, I think I can understand that uh, because I feel that we're so infatuated with our own life that we don't know when it is actually not so interesting. Yeah. It's like it's like all our lovers. I mean, they talk about themselves, their childhood, you know, but we've never been able to tell them because <laughs> nobody tells them. You know, it's like the kind of when people go on and on a bit about their childhood, and it's actually not that interesting. 
yeah. I'm the grandparent. I mean, <laughs> one of the things that we talk about in, in our workshops is the importance of finding a narrator to tell your story and creating that sort of distance between yourself and and the the persona that's telling your story that hopefully gives you the freedom to then start to shape the raw material of your life into something that other people are, are going to want to read. But I'm not sure I entirely agree with you about talent and instinct in that I do think that where that instinct comes from is, you know, reading and studying, you know, other writers, basically. And then you start to kind of internalize those lessons. Are there particular writers who have inspired you, who were your, who were your teachers, so to Actually, I don't, I don't agree with... Uh, you don't agree I don't, at all? I, I don't agree <laughs> with your view uh, that the instinct, uh, instinct and intuition uh, can be developed by reading. I know mm -hmm. if you're an intelligent person, a wise person, you can probably figure out what was going on, mm -hmm. you know. I, ca I can give you an example, like, because Naipaul just died. Yes. And as a, as a, maybe as a tribute, uh, mm -hmm. we can talk about him for 30 seconds. Uh, which is that I think when people say that Naipaul's, uh, when they talk about Naipaul's uh, analysis, uh, when they say that he was politically accurate about, say, mm -hmm. Islamic fundamentals, he was not. He was completely mm -hmm. wrong about many important things. Uh, but at that time, what Naipaul, the gift that Naipaul had was that for a westernized person, he was he had no respect for political correctness. So when you are a, an outsider, you're an intelligent person, and you do not let political correctness interfere with your analysis, you end up getting, you end up at least making some statements which, which could be true, because nobody else is saying it. Nobody else wants to say it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so for example, a, a reader uh, with, without this background, you know, a reader can be misled into thinking that uh, the very analysis, our analysis of Naipaul's gift itself could be mistaken. You know, so mm -hmm. let's not get, I mean, like his intuition instinct. Those are those could be far more complex than this. So I feel that uh, uh, reading alone uh, may not develop these these skills uh, reading of course does a lot of other things sure. uh, uh, I feel that this intuition and uh, this there's another underrated thing which is conjecture which is the ability to uh, experience uh, ability to to describe an experience that you have not actually experienced in another word imagination in you know yeah mm. you know uh, yeah, it is imagination, but it is also a certain accuracy of your conjecture. Mm. You know, like, for example, uh, how, how would human beings react in a situation? Uh, and I think what separates a lot of writers is the ability to make this guess. Uh, that's why, for example, one writers are able to write other genders very well. <coughs> you know, and actually some very good writers, they don't write the other gender very well. And I think the this uh, this difference I think is because of the quality of conjecture you mm. know, which some people are able to make and give account. Uh, I feel that not, there's nothing much that can be done about the intuition. So those are the things. So there is some kind of a writing which is actually heavily dependent on intuition, and maybe it is a good idea for writers. So just for example, if you feel that this instinct and intuition, uh, or even uh, intuition is also a form of courage sometimes. 
because most of the time your intuition can be in a, in a, in a minority that maybe the entire world might be saying something else. So if you're not the kind of person who wants to stand against that, maybe it's a good idea for writers to choose a particular kind of writing which is not heavily dependent on intuition. There's so many kinds of writing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess when I when I said that I that I think that one hones one's intuition, I'm thinking, for example, of the book Blink, where he talks about you know intuition is actually the sum of all your experiences processed at a level that the rational mind can't, uh, can't manage. Um, so when we talk about intuition, we're actually talking about sort of everything that we have uh, experienced in our life, including all of, the, all of the things that we've read. For this particular... Gladwell. Uh, Gladwell. The, the, the novel, I mean, the, uh, the book is called Blink. It was his first one on this. So I think it also has application to, um, to writers as well. So coming back to Miss Layla, so you started out with you know, a desire to talk about the political situation. You had the desire to talk about a particular kind of female uh, character. Was there like a particular scene that came to you first, or like where did the, you know, the the how did you first kind of dive into um, yeah. writing the novel? So the most important visual was of a man who was uh, stranded in the debris of a building, which was straight from my life. Uh, when I was twenty-five years old, I covered a, a huge earthquake in Gujarat. So I was among the first journalists. This is again a direct contribution of journalism because I had no other business to be in an earthquake uh, hit area. I was among the first journalists to land there and there were just, just bodies all over. And uh, we saw one man under a huge slab of, uh, uh, I think it was a wall, it was on him. And he was dying, but he was just blinking. He was looking at us and uh, he appeared to be saying something, but I think he was just disoriented. Mm. And at that point, it struck me that it'd be, what if he say, well, I was wondering, what is he saying, you know? Mm. Uh, is, he, is he saying, just get this off my chest, or uh, maybe he was thinking of a girl, and mm. you know, he was, he was just completely, he was, I don't know what he was <laughs> saying. And uh, it struck me that, what if he's saying something extre extremely important? And so, as a story, it was always there in my head. And uh, when I was thinking of various strands to tell the story, I was totally intoxicated by the idea. Uh, now we come to the synopsis of the whole book, which is uh, that he there's this man in the debris, and he's saying something. And what he's saying appear, appears to be the... A real time giving away the giving away the real time movement of a, a Muslim couple, uh, and uh, uh, they, uh, it appears that they're going to blow up something, and then uh, the whole story unfolds from. Uh, I mean, he gives he gives a few characters in the book the instructions of what to do literally when he meets in the devil. That's uh, that's what he's mumbling. Uh, so it, uh, uh, it so the visual was pretty strong for me so I needed to do something with this uh, story and I I felt that as a story it gave gave me a very it was very broad 
this man can say anything. So, and it gave me the flexibility, as you know, immediately that, and it's powerful, that uh, I'll be able to build uh, many stories based on what this man is mumbling. It all depends on what I want him to mumble. So that's the, yeah. That was that first yeah. dominating yeah. clear image. Yeah. And I also of a female prankster. I was yeah. very completely again intoxicated with the idea of uh, uh, of this this girl who would who would be this completely insufferable stand up come prankster. You know, mm -hmm. those see stand up is a stand up is a very risky territory for pros because uh, now what what works in stand up comedy is actually very dull when you're reading. You know, mm. those is actually quite bad also. And what works very well uh, as prose in a book mm. is not actually so funny in a stand-up uh, way because I have read my book out in in, in bars, mm. you know, where they say, although it's such a funny book, you should read out. And I really think it's not working. <laughs> you know? Do you think it sounds like, who talks like that? I said, this, this sentence sounded so bad in a bar, mm. bar you know. <laughs> So, uh, and uh, I thought these are different ways of writing. Mm -hmm. So I was, I told myself that I will not write her stand, I will not write too much of her uh, stand-up act. Though that was the time, again, it was very tempting for me to mm -hmm. pull off that, that prose, which will also work as stand-up, you know, which was again another challenge. But I was completely taken in by this, this character was, was forming in my head of this prankster. Uh, yeah, she reminds me a bit of Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah. I like him actually. Yeah. yeah, I would like to look. I think at the at the opening scene of the novel, and which we've given you. And can I get a volunteer to read it aloud? <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, just read the the yeah. Just read it. Yep, that one. Mm -hmm. When she returns from a long run, she finds her neighbors straining almost naked to become back. <clears throat> when a morose iPhone, men in morose iPhone underwear, women crouched behind parked cars or in, inside rings. Hidden inside rings formed by other women who are not there. Through the gaps in the cordons, she sees flashes of naked thighs, waists, backs. It's Friday, but that doesn't explain anything. Akira, in damn shorts and vests, blue bandana doesn't stop to find out what has happened. She's confident that Saul will puzzle anyone. Everything that happened in Mumbai had happened before. She walks across the concrete driveway towards the towards beach towers, even though the behavior of the residents should have warned her against entering the 20-story building. The possibility of death doesn't occur to her. It never does. If she's ever in, a, <coughs> in an air crash, she knows she would be that only miraculous survivor. She might even see, save a child. It's not hope, which is merely conversation with herself. Hope is a premonition of defeat. She knew that even as a little girl who used to wait for her mother to return, wait for days, for weeks. Optimism, on the other hand, is psychosis. Its victims alone know how cheerfully the disease takes them to doom. She has tried, but is, but is unable to have complete faith in the view that she will die one day. Science will find a way to make her immortal. People find immortality immunity <coughs> because they don't believe they deserve it. Like a gorgeous spouse, 
that depth is merely the technology of the universe. And the time comes, doesn't it, when science becomes absolute. Apart from immortality, she has no ground suspicion, no ground suspicions about her life. It will be filled with pranks, solitary sometimes, and beautiful, of course. As it is for people who run long distances. There might even be greatness at some point, but she's not very clear about the details. She sprints up the stairs to the ninth floor as she usually does. She's still on the first flight of the stairs when she hears the lift door open. It should have been an unremarkable event, but this morning the doors have a loud, clear voice, and there are echoes. Echoes are rare in her life. <laughs> you, can you can stop there. We'll, okay. we'll spare you. So, particularly those of you who've taken a workshop with us before, I'm counting on you to help me unpack the technique in this scene. So, just looking at that first paragraph or so, I mean, as a reader, how did that make you feel? Frozen. Hmm? Frozen. Yeah, you're, we're pulled immediately into that, uh, into that scene, aren't we? Anybody want to take a stab at what this technique is called? Yeah, and maybe address, yeah. So starting in the middle of things, and I think this is always a fantastic way to start a novel because as readers, we're, we're instantly engaged. And, you know, in this scene in particular, very curious because we don't know what's happening yet. It's disconcerting. What was the term you used? In medias race, um, yeah. It's a Latin, um, Latin term for in the middle of things. Yeah. Something we like to talk about a lot in our workshops is the narrator. What do you notice about this narrator? What kind of narrator is it? Hmm? Yeah, it's, it's a close third-person narrator. But I think something that's quite interesting here is that it's close, but it's not completely limited to Akela's point of view. We're also getting a little bit of distance there where we see the narrator, if you want to think about point of view as sort of like a film camera. And with an eye, you're really looking through your character's eyes with a first person. Then with a third person, limited point of view, you know, the camera's really kind of stuck on the shoulder of the character that you're, uh, that you're writing their perspective from. And then I think with this narrator, who's close, but not limited to Akilah's perspective, he can kind of zoom in and out. He also has his own, I'm saying he, but also has his own opinions. Uh, so he can kind of zoom in and give us her thoughts, but also can kind of look at her a bit more objectively, which yeah, I think is a really interesting technique. Certainly didn't come apart from you know, the conversation with any kind of suspicion. Something that is the narrator is telling us something. And next to it, she's going to come to say, and that really hurts. But that way, I did that. And I, I must say, I, I like that, um, where uh, it gives me a feel for being with, being in the mind, if you like, of the, this character. But then when it, the narrator brings me back, it's an observation. Yeah. So uh, it is a bit like a camera moving a little bit. It made me have a sort of, um, sort of, I think it's circle or whatever it is. Sardonic. <laughs> yes, a, 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 mm -hmm. a, a distance completely yeah. and a, a sort of critical look at it. 
yeah, I think with all of the characters um, whose perspective we kind of get throughout the novel, that the narrator also kind of maintains that um, slightly objective point of view. Ironic, it's kind of ironic in this case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, how, do you, how do you know that you're distanced? Because when I, when I read it, it feels like a terror perspective. Yeah, it's an omniscient. Solving puzzle and wrong. You can only know that then. Yeah, it's an omniscient narrator who knows her thoughts, but he's not limited to just her thoughts. He also has his own opinions about things. And you see that in the, for example, in the passage that Charles was quoting, where the narrator knows things that the character herself doesn't know. The tone here, I think, is also something that's worth talking about. Uh, what is the what is the tone of this voice? Ironic. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a bit of like a, a, a bit of a sardonic edge there to the to the voice. But when she when it says well, apart from the mentality, she has no blind suspicions about her life. It really sounds like he's making fun of her. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, and there certainly is as well some humor uh, in this voice, even when he's talking about quite, quite dramatic, quite emotional material that could be quite emotional. Yeah. And sarcastic in a way. Yeah, and very calm, you know, not, you know, not completely caught up in their dance. I mean, especially when he starts describing the, um, you know, when she's walking up the stairs. Yeah, Akila turns back and runs up the stairs in the unfamiliar silence of vacant homes. The stairway is littered with objects, which is unusual. These are pieces of clothing, eerie dolls, one daft Nokia that surely belongs to a maid, even food. There are footwear and a streak of blood, too. So much happens when people flee. I mean, this is a narrator who's not caught up in the excitement of this moment. Um, so, and I think that that helps it from seeming. Uh, I'm sorry. No, I, I was saying she herself doesn't pay any attention. Yeah, she she is also a bit uh, oblivious. She goes up and takes a shower and then comes back down. And I think you know you were talking about the melodrama, and I think that that calm tone is one of the things that keeps it. From you know, as a reader, it keeps it from seeming melod, you know, overly melodramatic uh, to us. Well, it happened to me during the when uh, when the earthquake had hit uh, Gujarat. A lot of people in Bombay felt the tremors, and but I was out on a run. Mm. And when I came back, uh, I just saw that I I used to hate my neighbors anywhere. Mm. Mm. Uh, they were all standing half naked. I thought. I thought these guys are now horrible. I said, now why are they standing half? But then I was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just went up because I didn't want to communicate mm-hmm. with these guys. And I just went up and I get a call from the photo. I used to work for a magazine called The Outlook. And I called, I got a call from the photo editor. I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, you don't know. I said, what? What happened? He said, there's been a huge earthquake in Gujarat and they feel the tremors. Oh my God! Then I thought, okay, maybe I should uh, leave the building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this really happened to you, and you yeah, were able to you were happened, able yeah. to give it to uh, to Akila. I, I think you know the other things that um, that I really appreciated about this scene are the really strong details. I mean, it's almost cinematic, the way that we're following her up the stairs, and you see the little lady with the uh, with the hangers. Um, why would you feel some of the uh, 
views uh, are not Achilles. I mean, I find that very interesting. But I mean, mm. once you write the novel, I mean, your yeah. analysis belongs to you. I mean, I think there's no point in me saying that no, that's. But I find it interesting that you feel that some of the views in the passage are not Achilles. But, like, for example, uh, you said, uh, for, uh, she has no gr- no other grand suspicions of her life apart from the fact that she's going to be immortal. Yeah. But it could be it could be this this girl who is making fun of herself. Like any any like for, most oh. people in their twenties are. I mean, they think they're immortal, but now I I still feel I am. But, uh, but a lot of young people think they are, and. Uh, you know, death and immortality, because it's the same thing. Mm. People do find it very funny. About uh, they find they find any idea of death funny. They find immortality funny. And uh, I, but I, so maybe it is a. It is maybe it's it's uh, it's. I, I was wondering if there's an ambiguity in the in the prose uh, that makes you feel that it uh, it is not her. I think it's it's just the the placement of this particular passage uh, where where it's uh, in in the overall narrative. So she comes into a building that uh, it's been hit by earthquake. She has things to do, and the same time while she's approaching the elevator, she sort of reflects on her life, and that voice can be hers, but that voice it's almost like hers uh, looking at herself from the distance, analyzing her behavior. Uh, summarizing it, putting it into the context mm. of her overall personality, all the way while she has some business in the building. So it's like uh, it's uh, 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 it's kind of it's a uh, sort of yeah. You said it's like a, me- a very immediate scene, but at the same time it has some sort of self reflection building. A self reflection that is. Uh, that you people usually engage into, they are kind of have more time to self reflect, and I think this is what makes it different. And not necessarily say that the voice is not hers, but it's almost like, yeah, that's me, and then there is another me mm-hmm. looking at me and thinking about me. Yeah. That stupid girl going into that building that's about to collapse, and I'm trying to rationalize it Correct. to myself. So she might be thinking that, but the way it's structured, it sounds like there's somebody by her head listening and then saying, ah, apart from immortality, she has no great suspicions about her life. She, she, the narrator, hears that and is narrating that to readers. Um, you know, and, and, but there are things that could well be that, certainly. Doors have a large pair of wires, and there are echoes. Echoes are rare in Mumbai. Did she notice that? In fact, the narrator, my assumption is she noticed that. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's how it comes across on first reading. I have another thought about that when I was reading the second paragraph because the first sentence is about Akila as an observation, but Akila in damp shorts and dress and the blue bandana does not stop to find out what has happened. Now this could be the narrator maybe watching an actress and putting it down here. Mm. But then it moves on further and it says she's haunting the soil in the public at the moment. Maybe the confidence is also 
that he has seen. And then it says, everything that happened to me might have happened before. Now, this could, this sentence could be the narrator's take on what it is. But since we are already listening to what the narrator is saying about Abdullah, we think that this whole story in Abdullah's case, because that's how she believes that the confidence comes in, because she's already seen this in, happening in Mumbai before. Mm. And the narrator, we do not question that narration at all, because that is the truth of Abdullah, in a way. So it just, it gets woven really well for me. It's almost the same voice. Yeah. coming from another person. Yeah, it's just zooming, that, yeah. that perspective kind of zooming yeah. in and really seeing things through her eyes and then maybe zooming out just yeah, slightly. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, that was my perception of the, of the narrator throughout, and I, I think it, it worked really it worked really well uh, in the novel. And especially because you do have, you are giving us multiple points of view. So we get Akila here, and then we have the... Um, Professor uh, Bade, yeah. Bade, um, and yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's say if it was a five-year-old girl on the steps, and uh, say one of the sentences which she felt mm. it could be the narrator. Let's mm -hmm. say, so, so if you encounter that, if it is a five-year-old girl who's going up and you encounter a line, you immediately know that it's jarring, right? That then, uh, so I give this example, I mean, I'm just wondering then, then we know for a fact that that couldn't be the thought of a five-year-old girl, mm. right? So I think that would be, uh, that would be a dead giveaway that it's a narrator who's mm. also talking. Well, also, I don't think that if you sprint up a building, a collapsed building, that you are thinking about echoes are rare in my area, or it's uh, different. So it's something that's... Because at that point, she doesn't know. At that point, she doesn't know, and then I was also uh, making an argument in my case, like when I was doing this scene, because uh, the, the start of a character's point of view is always tricky, right? Because now, the, now the first line is always, it's always funny for me, because the first line creates the character, you know, but from the first line itself, the character started thinking, you know. So the character's thought precedes the creation of the character mm. uh, because everything about the character has been, uh, is, is, from her, is from her point of view. So in, in her case, there's at the subconscious level, you know something is wrong, you know that nobody's in the building, there's a sense of danger. It's like you imagine a young woman walking in, uh, in, in, in uh, down a night street which is desolate, right? So you can create a sense of danger because that's a theoretical danger. You already know you're supposed to feel unsafe. Mm -hmm. Now, whether something is lurking, you know, what happens later, we don't know. But the sense of danger is already established by some theoretical conditions. Mm -hmm. And even on the stairs, it's so... Someone who sees her neighbors standing outside the building, she just goes up the building and then slowly she begins to mm -hmm. see that there are signs that people have fled. Mm -hmm. Now, there could be a Godzilla on top uh, or she doesn't like, nobody's going mm -hmm. to think of a tremor. Like, so I thought what is more challenging for me is like now, the, my problem with that scene, whether I should stay with that scene was... Now it looks like there is a creature on top and everybody fled and she's <laughs> going on top, right? So I thought, would I do that? Because now clearly, she, 
he also says people have fled actually the, the, mm. if you want to accept that it was not the narrator who's who's coming to the conclusion that people have fled then would she still continue to go on top of the building but then i thought she's already sent something but but then that is that is also her mm. in fact finally in the film version we were i was discussing with a filmmaker on mm. and she's on the way back and she checked tinder you know <laughs> and i thought you know actually it just goes with her personality mm. you know it just goes with her personality and uh, once you accept that you're immortal you know in mm. a situation then the rest are just parts of your life mm. you know what you what you do you know uh, so i thought it'll be funny but then the only thing is i don't know enough about tinder to get uh, you know so i said that okay she gets her and then she gets her partner and then he picks it fixes a date mm-hmm. then some young guy in the office said that no no it doesn't happen so fast okay <laughs> <laughs> i said how long does it take he said it might take 2 3 days to get her stick what, what's wrong with this i thought i thought tinder was like uh, you just send a text but that says she's very very pretty i said even then it take a few hours it's not like 5 minutes Right. So so you know so that was a good lesson for me it's like don't get into areas you don't know so that you don't do that in the book in the movie one guy makes a suggestion i get excited you know till anyway that's a, that's a, I mean we do learn so much about her in the scene i mean not yes. only about her personality but you know a, a bit of her backstory and yeah. her mother and so yeah i mean i think it, it's it's a great opening scene in that we're really we're drawn into it we learn quite a lot about the main character and i and i think it's also very effective because it puts us into a world where things are a little bit off balance where things are not quite what they seem and then that kind of sets us up as well for the rest of yeah, the yeah. for rest of the narrative yeah that's a good observation because i also wanted her to make some very clear intellectual philosophical observations mm-hmm. uh where, which is not about which is which is beyond this gender constrictions you know mm-hmm. where she's she's mm-hmm. talking about a universe just like any guy would talk mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Uh, you know mm-hmm. she's making an analysis about the science of uh, immortality mm-hmm. you know so which i thought uh, so that's why i felt uh, maybe it's an interesting thing to bring about the, in the beginning of the book yeah. so that because she's going to be very funny later i didn't want her anybody anybody to think she's a trivial character you know so so i wanted to her to gravitas, first, first yeah. get the heft mm-hmm. okay and because she's going to do a lot of things which are kind of very very I mean at least I used to I mean I find very light and endearing yeah yeah, yeah. Like but I wanted the next a, chapter we yeah. we'll see that as well yeah. yeah you've chosen to give us actually a number of points of view in the in the novel and so also um uh, Layla's little sister uh, Aisha and Uh, the intelligence officer who's following Layla and even some you know some sort of random followers of the of the prime minister who's just been elected how did you decide whose points of view you were going to include in the novel hmm that's interesting uh one thing i was very sure about was i would not have Layla's point of view mm-hmm. because i i didn't want to show show her mind because i don't know if she's a terrorist i don't think anybody uh, would know so i want because once i get into lila's mind then i have to show her as she knows mm. where she's going yeah 
So I don't know where she's going myself. So I knew that. And then Aisha was a challenge because uh, I had to get, uh, uh, you know, get, get a young person's uh, uh, view. But I knew that Aisha is going to be very, very important for the, uh, the characterization of Lila. I didn't want anybody, I didn't want an adult to tell the character of Lila. And I wanted, I always was very sure it had to be a child. And 10 years ago, I couldn't have done it. You know, because but now I have my own daughter, so I'm mm. kind of very confident. Uh, in fact, if I see little children, I want to tell them, "You don't scare me anymore." <laughs> <laughs> I just want to go. I just want to go to them unprovoked, yeah. and just tell them, Look, "Don't scare me. I can do anything." <laughs> you know. So, so I knew exactly what to do, but now the philosopher mm-hmm. Webb. Mm. He, to me, was interesting because actually, from a story point of view, I didn't need him. Mm-hmm. I could have made uh, the major in the uh, venue, and that would have been faster, more compact. The mm-hmm. army major who's in charge of the rescue, mm-hmm. he could have been the one who could have actually filled in. But he would, the, the way there's a particular kind of an Indian, he's, he, he can be found only in India now. He's a particular type of an intellectual, which the army major will not be, you know, he's, uh, he wouldn't have the same personality, I could have pulled it mm-hmm. off, you know, but I, I wouldn't have been convinced. So that was a major decision for me to make, whether sh- I mean, should I have him or not. Uh, he was a very important voice I wanted to convey, the voice of uh, uh, moral ambiguity, moral ambiguity as a form of intelligence. You know, as mm-hmm. or intelligence or something which is way superior to morality. You know, that is what that mm-hmm. guy, um, at the same time, he's not fake, he's not a murderer, he's not psychotic. Mm-hmm. He's not a bad person. But important thing is he's not a good person either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and he is a, he, he's, he's actually an observer who gets all the information, you know, who is, uh, who's a patriarch of this right-wing organization and who is not, I mean, people people understand right-wing organization through thugs and through those little guys, you know, but they are they are not the ones who are, who, uh, you know, who, who create things, you know, who create ideas and revolutions. And, uh, so he was very important to me. And uh, then I, by experience, I know there is no point in trying to fight a character, you know. Mm-hmm. So whether... I mean, after a point, you just, uh, you know that the character has earned his right to exist. And some of the other characters, I was not very interested in them to stay with them for too long. Like the fans of uh, Damodarabai, yeah. you know. Because you have to stay, it's such a long, hard process, the, I, the whole process of writing a book, that you need to like even the bad guy. That you're writing. Mm. Actually, though, it's an interesting question that you raised because initially I wanted uh, Damodar Bai's point of view. Damodar Bai is like mm. the uh, based. But the thing was, I, I would end up making him endearing. You know, I knew that if I put him in the story, I would mm. make him endearing, and endearing was at the end of it, even despite everything. And I didn't want that guy. I didn't, to be sympathetic. I didn't want that. Uh, See, sympathy is only part of it. Mm-hmm. It's like, me, it, it, I, 
I don't think I would have enjoyed the process of rehabilitating that guy. So, and 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 if he if we in real life he had a certain intellectual heft, let's say, uh, I would have still enjoyed it. You know, I like great I like great characters. You know, I feel that. Uh, uh, I feel that uh, evil should be given a chance in literature, you know. Though there are there are some areas I wouldn't go, you know. But there are like political evil is my territory. I mean, I'm fine with that, you know. But still, I thought I may not enjoy it. I may not enjoy it as much as this philosophical professor, who's more who's a kind of a guy I also would like. And I've had conversations with such guys, and. Uh, so these are very very important decisions to make actually and these uh, never know maybe the novel would have been something else if i had I allowed myself to get into that mode like mohammed hanif did it very well with uh, uh, a case of exploding mangoes he got into zia zia's mind but then he, it was a comedy so it was it was being farcical about zia. but even then i could see that he liked him so I asked Hanif, look, you do have a crush on Zia. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, I find him interesting, you know. See, so but then, uh, uh, but then I thought uh, no, because you can't, you can't hate a character and tell the, you know, and and live with the point of view of that person. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that actually. I mean, because Damodar Darbai. Darbai. You know, something that people who are not familiar with Indian politics may not have picked up on, but he is very much um, a kind of stand-in for the current prime minister of India. And all of these kind of bizarre facts and like the whole thing about the celibacy and, I mean, it, it is Modi. This is Modi here that you have on the page. And I was thinking, you know, I couldn't, I, I don't think I could write a novel about the political situation in my own country because it would make me so angry. And how did you, you know, how did you give yourself the the kind of emotional distance that you need to write a, a book yeah. like this? Sorry? Yeah, yeah, I would have wanted to say that. Though I should say all characters are fictitious uh, and <laughs> <laughs> any resemblances coincidental because we're recording this, yeah. But now that you bring it up, <laughs> uh, uh, actually, I, I maybe I have to tell you something which is very annoying, but I, I think I do it every other day, so it's okay. Uh, I, I felt more anger towards my country's liberal establishment that comes across too. <laughs> than the writing exam is what my general, entire journal says. You 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 face them, mm-hmm. and uh, you've dealt with them, and you know what they're capable of, and and maybe you always feel more strongly about the world where you're supposed to, you know, you you belong. You know, they thought I belong here, you know, to that other world. You know, and uh, and that's how they would talk to me and deal with me. And I and I I've I've always wondered uh, in this battle in India, where these so-called good guys were they were they the best uh, we could uh, we could we could uh, think of? Mm. Because in India, unlike in Europe now, contemporary Europe, the consequences of good guys failing is immense. People die. It's very simple. You know, if you're a 
if you are a woman who is poor or if you are a Muslim who is poor, if you are a minority, the consequences of people who are supposed to guard you being mediocre is very, very severe. It is not just about a professor giving a bad mm. talk mm. in a news or just some people studios not being very interesting, you know. It is more than that. You have to win elections. If you lose elections, then a set of things will happen. And very bad things will happen to some people who need protection, who need guardians, and who can who are protected only by democracy and politics. You know, not by people who appear in television studios. So 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 I find the process of erecting these good guys in my country very faulty, very flawed, which is good enough for journalism and other things where the consequences are not as severe as life of mm. life and death. So what the right wing is now telling us now we are the guardians of the good guys and the bad guys. Okay, so we can do it and actually they have a point. Okay, they're saying that you just if you think we are the problem, we are also the solution. You know, and as we try to become many, why do you want mediocre good guys? Okay, why don't you have extremely bright grey guys? You know, so uh, and I like I I know that I know the flaw in this argument, and it is not good enough. So I that's why Akila was so important to me. Mm. Where what is she trying to do? She is using pranks. To make fun of a type of people who are never made fun of. Mm. Arun Roy, for example. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it was the most obvious. Like, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're in India, you won't be so surprised. Uh, of course, she has her followers who would be very surprised. Mm. You know, But then nobody has challenged this view. Even mm. those people who are like, oh, yeah. But yeah, actually, yeah, right. That's true. Mm. Because everybody did enjoy her essay about Mukesh Ambani, the pictures of the ugly $1 billion mm. house. Uh, but then, what, uh, to me, it's a very unremarkable point of view to take on uh, a billionaire who built an ugly house and make fun of him. What's the, yeah. what's the big deal? About looking in your own backyard. Yeah, but then, yeah, exactly. Because it, uh, I think uh, 90% of Indians, if they stood outside Arundhati Rao's house, I think they would be equally baffled. So it's just... Uh, so it's just, it's all very relative. Yeah, and you, I mean, you have a wonderful line that is from Attila's point of view, that in the battle between presumed good and presumed evil, good is hiring poorly. <laughs> so, yeah. In terms of, I mean, this could have easily been a thriller in many ways. You could have taken these same... Are you, say, are you saying it's not? <laughs> well, I, I don't think it fits, I don't think it, fits conveniently into that box. I mean, I think it does things that a conventional thriller would not do. I mean, did you ever consider writing a conventional thriller? And did your publisher push you to write a conventional thriller? No, no. In fact, that is the, you know, that is the, that is the, Mm. uh, uh, the funny thing. I I thought I was writing a thriller, Mm. right? And it's just like writing is, always with writing is like falling. Mm. You always fall the right way. No matter what you do, you know, you just there's only one way to fall. So I can sit there and think that I'm going to do this, I can, mm. I'm going to do that. And I know that, you know, there's nothing mm. you can do about it. I, I, I can sit down and try to die, write a Dan mm. Brown. And it's, it's not going to work. Just mm. like Dan Brown is trying to say, I'm going to, I'm, I now, I'm, I'm going to be taken mm-hmm. seriously. Okay. Mm. And then 
maybe he'll be, I don't know what he'll come up with, you mm-hmm. know, so it'll be extremely uh, confused, you know, so it is something which I used to notice when I was, as, as a reader, uh, a lot of so-called, uh, let's assume there's such a thing as a literary novel, okay, though mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. But what was called literary novel, those guys used to go to those book festivals and sit in circles and talk about uh, how I, I don't need the reader, I'll do what I want. They used to overestimate a lot of simple things that genre, other genres used to do very easily. Mm. Like what they would call science fiction was what something science fiction would be doing for centuries. And what they would call thriller, you mm. know, Thriller genre would say mm-hmm. that this is like uh, an art film. It's so slow, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so, uh, so there is that issue of uh, of the that is the problem with a particular kind of books. It's it, you're not a product line. You're a, mm-hmm. you're a whole product. It's like uh, how do you describe yourself? You know. Uh, so yes. So I know what I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. But then, is there such a thing as uh, in fact, I would ask, is there such a thing as a conventional thriller in the first place? Isn't every thriller actually quite dramatically different? Now, let's take what is called science fiction. First of all, 99% of science fiction is actually fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's most science fantasy with very little science. It's actually a form of fantasy, which is not called fantasy. There are some novels, like, for example, the latest one where the moon explodes in the beginning. I've read half of it. I enjoyed it. The first, the first, first paragraph, the moon explodes, and then um, it's it's a big uh, it's a big success. But that book was proper science fiction because he the the plot depends on the science. What happens mm-hmm. after the moon explodes? Mm. You know, so that's different. But I think most of the time, fantasy is called something, and something else is called thriller. You know, so I think genre, I'm not so convinced it is, uh, it is there in reality, you know. So now they have this Targaryen thing where they call it hard science fiction and soft science fiction. Oh, so they do that, they started doing that, okay. I mean, I think it, when, it, when it comes to thrillers and, and maybe it is the, you know, the, the idea behind the book, hmm. you know, with a conventional thriller, it is to kind of pull you in and drag you through hmm. An, an experience to keep you turning the pages. Yeah. And, I mean, this book certainly does have a page-turning quality, but that's not all it's trying to do. Yeah. Obviously, I would argue that's fairly low down on the list in some ways yeah. in terms of the things that it's trying to accomplish. But it does, I, I mean, it does have certain things in, in common with the con- I mean, are there, are there techniques that you kind of, you know, that you looked at the conventional thriller and said, "Okay, you know, uh, this is I'm gonna I'm gonna give it that page turning quality." No, I'm not a big fan of conventional thriller. In mm-hmm. fact, I I read I think Chronicle of uh, Death foretold faster than Dan mm-hmm. Brown. You know, uh, I could I could mm-hmm. turn the pages faster yeah. than for uh, uh, maybe not Dan for maybe Frederick Frosseth for uh, Frosseth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I just had this. Uh, maybe maybe I'm more influenced by cinema mm-hmm. in that sense, uh, as as something which has some kind of an integrity to pace. Mm-hmm. You know, we forget that we need uh, integrity to many aspects of writing, and we always keep pace at the end of it as though something which is frivolous. Uh, but but I I I. Uh, 
I don't think anything in life is frivolous. Mm. No? Uh, and I never, never ever thought pace was trivial. Trivial. Yeah. The real ch- because I feel that you can say a lot of things mm. over five hundred pages, but if you also want to, if you also, I think a lot of people write novels are actually not storytellers. Mm. You know, I know this sounds uh, <laughs> uh, unkind. Yeah. But many, a lot of people are memoir writers, maybe a lot of people are narrators in some way, you know, but there is such a thing as story. We may not know what a literary novel is, but we know what a story is. You know? A story is always a remarkable event. You know, you can, you can bring in all your fundas, you can say what you want. Jim going to the market is not a story. You know? A story has to be a remarkable event for four 20,000 years of our civilization as human beings who could talk and communicate. That was the meaning of the story. It was powerful enough to create religions Mm. and many, many concepts. I feel that uh, that can't change. You can can argue intellectually that a story can just be something which is just... Whatever you say. Yeah, yeah, whatever Mm -hmm. you say. Uh, See, that's why when Jim goes to the market, from people, because storytelling is is hard. When Jim goes to the market, suddenly the donkey begins to talk and the pig begins to fly. You know, that is my problem with magic realism, and it always happens when you're stuck with a story, the hippo <laughs> begins to fly. <laughs> you know, and the logical flaw in this, the logical flaw is that once the hippo begins to fly. There's no point in Jim going to the market. (laughs) Because the hippo flying Mm -hmm. while the donkey is talking is the greatest story ever told. You You don't need Jim anymore. Jim can meet Jill and and they can be in love Mm -hmm. and uh, they can have conversations and someone's father Mm -hmm. can die, but that doesn't matter. The hippo is flying. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else that needs to be told. Mm -hmm. You know, that is my problem with magic realism. Mm -hmm. The moment... Like the day I said, it's not enough. Sorry? That there is it's not enough problem you have with the story. The, the gods have come down and, and fixed the problem. I'm sorry? The, the gods have appeared and fixed the problem. That's yeah, the yeah, you're right, in a way. Yeah. Okay, but uh, yeah, it's that's an easy solution, yeah. right? When it's a way out, you're right. It's a way out, and, and I also can see it as a process of when uh, I tell, I, t- I used to tell. Uh, my contemporaries un- until I lost them for saying these kind of things. <laughs> Instead of making a monkey talk from under the bed, why don't you change the font if you're so bored? <laughs> I'm telling you, it works. It if you're work. stuck with the story, I'm telling you. Say that in those words. <laughs> yeah. I said, just change the font from Times New Roman or whatever, you know, to Arial. You will think your story is actually kind of different and it's kind of nice, you know. You just need those, see, though it happens in two, three days where you're questioning, it's like, you know, you're stuck, you're, you're tired, you know, you're, you're, you're with that, you know, so you're, yeah, or maybe it's bad, you know, that I could also be there. I'm interested, I mean, the little I've read, you, you seem to use, and going back to what mm-hmm. you say, I said about the thriller stuff, you often use these straightforward, st- strong sentences, quite short, and then every now and then you seem to use your eye to reflect, to say something revealing or profound about the situation. It reminds me of a bit of chance. 
No, but there are there are a particular yeah there are. Uh, yeah, it is. It, I I feel that sometimes uh, there are uh, various levels of objective. So now uh, a holes there could be a like for example in the beginning the the scene exists for the scene. You know I needed to tell that uh, there is this has happened then she's and her observations are part of uh, that's what she is. But sometimes I create a platform to make an observation which I think is important. Like for example, in the book, there is this thing about uh, writing being selfie and all of literature being a selfie because ultimately what people are interested in themselves. I wanted to just say it is independent of character, it is independent of story. It is something which I <coughs> wanted to say. So, so I would also set it up okay, for the character to make this observation and that is a part of the objective so there are many moving parts in a story so this is uh, so the observations that you're talking about uh, while somehow still organic to a story because that also contributes to the characterization yeah. Yeah. is uh, uh, is also part of a th clearly thought out objective yeah. I mean, uh, And then you go on, but uh, but then the stories of the Republic were delivered. So you're describing the book almost objectively, and then the thought process comes into review. And I think, that, in my opinion, that's not really that's really excellent in that it reveals so much. I was wondering, do you do you write poetry? <laughs> it's like it's like uh, you can ask me about sex, but not uh, not no, this question. No, there's a <laughs> no, no, I know what you mean. It is. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. Uh, to me, form is important, though. I uh, it's interesting that you mention it because I usually don't uh, talk about it, you know. Mm -hmm. And I have this long, difficult relationship with poetry. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, but I find it. I mean, it is an extremely powerful way of telling anything, and that is one form of literature which actually doesn't need a story. It is it is probably the only form of literature which actually doesn't need a story. Um, and it, it actually, a novel can, can contain many moments of poetry. You know? And that is, that is the most unique thing about a novel. It is many things. And uh, it has a story, it has space, but then it also has moments of poetry. You know, where I just feel very pompous when I say uh, I have some moments of poetry. It's like <laughs> I, I, it just comes out. Of, it comes out very poorly when I say it. But then I think a, a novel can have these. You know, uh, it can be just two or three lines. Actually, it can be just a line. Uh, so a novel lets you do these things. Mm. Well, and you made a, a few of your characters poets, and Kendon yeah. is uh, trying to write poetry, and I think also is it Professor Wade or the. Or the um, Moody character himself. Moody himself. Yes. Moody uh, Damodar Bai. Yeah. Damo, Damo yeah. Bai. But Damo is that's that's a, uh, uh, that's I find that very interesting. Moody in real mm -hmm. life, you mm -hmm. know, he is a poet mm -hmm. uh, because he says so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and also, I uh, what is interesting about Moody, in fact, that's where I think his 
is, is the analysis of his poetry was done poorly in my country. You know, mm. either they pretended to be some kind of literary intellectuals who looked down at, at him, mm. or they were just so oh, it's like. A, but what was interesting about his poetry was that he was always the strong guy. Mm. You know, Modi was always uh, a lion, a tiger, or this. Uh, uh, spider who would work mm -hmm. hard and so and people miss the beauty in 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 what he was unconsciously portraying and mm. usually literature is a celebration of vulnerability and here's a man who's actually not a poet in the conventional sense and he doesn't know that mm. and he is celebrating strength and 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 people and this is a great insight into why he has succeeded you know he's a, an Indian to be an Indian politician you can't be a poet in a conventional sense and when they kill you the third day <laughs> this is a survivor you know he's a man who knows how to survive in one of the most difficult nations in the world and he is a strong man you know and he perceives himself as a he's a dude you know that's what he is and the poetry of a dude has its own you know uh, character to it, you know, which I find is very different from other kind of poetry, which which uh, which has the uh, uh, it has a certain unconscious or conscious humility about the fact that mm. I'm broken, you know, I'm weak, mm. I'm broken, and 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 then we all rush out to that poetry, and we we. He said, great, you know, now that you accepted your week and we are going to like you. <laughs> While Bodhi's poetry is saying that, vote for me. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's uh, so, uh, so I, in fact, I wanted to mention that and without too much literary criticism. I, but actually, it's interesting that you mentioned it. If I was no, not so uh, conscious of pace, I would have gotten to a literary criticism of those two kinds of poetry, mm -hmm. right? And I would have had a lot of fun doing it, but I don't know what it would have done to the book. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Well, if literature is a selfie, it sounds like his poetry is a selfie with a filter <laughs> in it. Um, I want to open up the questions, questions from the audience, but there were two that I wanted to get in, just thinking a little bit about process and... A, a, something I'm always curious as a writer when I'm when I'm reading a book is I I wonder how different you know what I'm reading is from the first draft that that writer produced. That's very interesting. Uh, I'm very uh, fascinated by writers who say it's my eighth draft. Mm. Uh, I don't know how you arrived at the actual mm. number. Nobody's mm. <laughs> suspicious of revising. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, there is no number. It's like mm. one constant thing with some things change, some things don't change. Usually, the start is from the first, strangely, because without that, a lot of other things wouldn't have followed because mm -hmm. that's how I write. I need mm. the start. Um, so, uh, I would say many things would be, would be pretty close mm. to... Uh, uh, the actual substance of the first draft. I do a lot of changes because I don't like uh, ugly prose, and you end up writing a lot of ugly prose. I uh, I like a bit of form, and uh, like uh, though even though I feel language is overrated, uh, there are some things you can't help in how you want to present uh, 
hmm. your sentences. So uh, it will be, uh, uh, be a lot of that actually. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the characters and the scenes that are in the final product were pretty much there in the first draft as well. Yeah, but then there are some things which came, a few things uh, which came, actually, actually, you know, uh, well, there was, uh, while some of the language was there in the first, initially I wanted uh, Akila to have a right-wing boyfriend, mm. a more of a thuggish kind of, because she would be the one who will go for a guy like that. Mm. There was an interesting moment when in, in India, uh, uh, posh, uh, uh, I mean, it's 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 pretty hierarchical socially, also, right? And there was uh, this girl who had to, who, who was raised in Western Europe, but she was of Indian origin. And uh, uh, and she looked at this young man who actually in Bombay there are guys who just iron press your clothes. They stand on the road and press your clothes, and so he's a, he's so hot, right? But he was a completely he was a poor guy. He was a slum guy. And it was very funny for me because a, a, a sophisticated posh girl like her in mm. India with that social background would never, not even look at a guy mm. like him, okay? But then then I looked at him and uh, so maybe that's interesting. Nobody looks at him like that, right? Mm. Nobody looks at the beauty of uh, poor people mm. in India, you know? But Akila is a kind of a character. I thought that that would be interesting to bring that out, mm. you know? And this girl, on purpose, she has a boyfriend who's from the slum to make fun of uh, the hypocritical Indian liberals who are mm. all very posh, who mm. say everybody's equal. And, uh, but they're living in, but, you know, behind, but behind they never, a big But wall. they never have a slum boyfriend. Mm -hmm. You know, what a coincidence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, I was finding it very difficult to write. I, was, I knew that I'll enjoy it. But I was finding, uh, because it was all from her point of view, now uh, uh, I thought I should have gone back to my girlfriend and interviewed them on how they see men. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. so I was really uh, I was not I was not I didn't have the depth to pull this off. Mm -hmm. You know how how she would look at her boyfriend. Uh, so it was difficult for me to do it. I wanted to do it. You know, uh, but it was difficult. So but I tried. You know. So mm -hmm. but that was an important component I put That's, away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you did you create an outline and? Were you just kind yeah, of flying yeah. by the seat of your pants? No, no, no. I'm not the spontaneous kind uh -huh. of writer. I need to plot uh, everything. I need mm -hmm. to know what's going on. I, I like flowcharts. Okay. Yeah, I just, I know everything. It's all... Uh, I would love to see that flowchart. <laughs> uh, but then a lot of things change when you start writing anyway. Sure. You know, so uh, I wait for those surprises. You feel you The reward in writing is, is uh, mostly it doesn't come. But mostly it's planned. But then when there's serendipity, you know, and that is when you feel that you've got something free, you know, from the universe. Uh, otherwise, you have to work hard for everything else. Yeah. Uh, increasingly, those moments of serendipity are very rare, so which is something which worries me, you know, as though someone is turning off the tap. Yeah. Was the ending always clear to you from the beginning? In this story, yes. You know, for illicit happiness of other people, I had many options, you know. And uh, uh, I, I, that was a novel where I, I knew that uh, I can wait for the ending, let me just do the other things and 
and then see what is uh, what is the most courageous ending mm. you know i thought uh, that actually people don't realize that novel needed uh, a bit of courage to uh, state some things you know so i just uh, so that one i was not very sure okay. yeah I, we have a few minutes for, uh, well, we're going to take a few minutes uh, to give you guys an opportunity to ask any final questions. Anybody? Yeah, I have one question. Um, how, you did, how did you discover your, your style of writing, or like you say, like a, a thriller or this kind of... So the style wouldn't be the form, I mean, the, yeah. the format, mm -hmm. when it, whether it's a, uh, maybe style it comes in the way style, of a yeah. thriller, mm -hmm. <laughs> no. Uh, I, now I've uh, uh, actually I don't know I just knew what I didn't want like yeah. I don't want yeah. to start with a recipe for instance yeah. like mm -hmm. I would not I want uh, sentences to uh, every sentence to just convey to add you know, they, they, it has to have a reason to mm -hmm. be there mm -hmm. yeah you know but I will not be able to explain why I need a certain kind of a form, Sorry, you know, apart from the fact it's, I mean, I'm sure it's got to do something to do with vanity, you know. Okay. Actually, I, the closest I've come is when I see people with hair, right. They do many things with their hair, you know, and I notice that's a close, like maybe people who don't have hair have other compensations, yeah. you know, they do things with what they have. Yeah. So it's a bit like, I think it's a lot like, actually you don't need, I mean, people with hair don't, believe that <laughs> actually you don't need it and but you still have it and it is a part of you mm -hmm. it is just you and this is what there is no reason mm -hmm. so I think I feel a lot of thing about style and some people don't do anything <coughs> with their hair you know so so maybe there are different kinds of uh, uh, writing and then there are some kind of style which I can't stand like Salman Rushdie that or... That was a follow-up uh, on the question. Is like, uh, yeah, that kind of purple, yeah. kind of purple prose. Mm, kind, kind you know, style, I can't. Yeah. Which yeah, brown yeah. people are allowed to get away with. You know, for some reason they think it's very exotic. Mm. Uh, but uh, uh, I like... I Actually, I find a lot of things which are not called style very stylish. Like I find Goodzie way, very stylish. Mm. You know, at the same time, strangely, I love Marcus. You know, they are two... Different two ends of this, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, like in music, in, in like different styles of music. Maybe, yeah. yeah, yeah. Any other mm -hmm. questions? What is your dog eating? Excuse me. What is your dog eating? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, she didn't do so well in the very first. Uh, the very my, I brought my dog to the first one of these we did. But she gets very excited when people clap. She thinks it's for her. So we decided to leave her at home. Uh, any other questions? Yeah, something I was curious. Yeah. You said something about beauty in you. Yeah, I'm, I'm in conversation uh, for this. And then I don't know how it works here, but back home there's a lot of conversations with the movie. There's a lot of talk. And that that's going to go on for another one year before I sign anything. So, uh, I think there is something very cinematic about about the novel, and we can easily imagine it being translated into a yeah. film. Although it would lose, it would lose a lot of the things that I think make it wonderful. But yeah, but I, mean, um, I don't want the film to be too faithful to the book. Yeah, you know? I think I think that's always a bit of a mistake. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
certain thing. I want to ask on in writing a woman and, and from a female mm. perspective, did that offer any kind of freedom? Freedom? Mm. No, it was difficult. <laughs> but why did we free? I mean, free yeah. from writing a man. I mean. mm. um, did it, well, I mean, I feel writing from the other gender's point of view helps mm. me to distance myself from the character. Yeah. And gives me a kind of freedom that if I'm writing a woman, I get complicated in myself. But why do you want uh, distance? In fact, that's one thing I want to ask other writers. Like, mm -hmm. if you're writing a book and you're writing the characters, like, why do you want to dis? Why do you want distance? Because that's just my feeling. Is mm -hmm. that you can you can be more deliberate in what you do and how you make your statement. It becomes less of a selfie. Hmm. I think yeah. that's, uh, yes. mm -hmm. you know... You're I know, but I, I recommend plagiarism, you know, in the mm. sense that I feel that you plagiarize from yourself. For, for, I mean, we, we, mm. the more in, because we actually, when we start writing, we realize that we actually know very little about the human mm. condition. That's like what we know best is ourselves, and mm. to some extent the projection of the parents, which is totally fraudulent, you know, and most of the projections is what we're dealing with and when you actually try to write about it you realize that it's not it's just one is nothing mm -hmm. but to me it was the opposite to me it was very very I, like I had to I had to abandon some storylines because I chose to you know I had half a mind to now start writing from the other the right-wing thugs point of view mm. who has got lucky with this posh girl you know, I, I know it would be a very funny strand, but I just didn't want to do that because I went through this thing. I don't want to write uh, uh, that kind of a guy, you know, now that, but now I think maybe I will go back and, and write <laughs> do it. it right? no, I think <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, so sometimes I ask, am I overthinking, you know, I mean, am I overthinking if, oh, what, Akila will think, you know, why can't you just presume what she would think or create, you know, it's your character, create what she would think but I have a problem I feel that a novel while it can be a work of imagination it can be many things this just still has to be some consideration to anthropology where we are still stating what is true if not what is factual you know so I feel that if I'm completely making up without any substance or any convictions within <coughs> myself about uh, this girl actually, like, let's say, make her very excited about this guy's smell, you know, maybe smells of jaggery. If I'm not very convinced, that I know that it'll be a problem. Um, so, uh, so in fact, it, it was very uh, limiting for me to stick to what, what are you very sure about, you know, when you're writing her, you know. Uh, I noticed this with a writer I liked, a lot. I often mention this when we talk about cross-gender writing, a writer I really like is Ann Tyler, she's an American writer, and when she writes men, those men are very delicate guys who know what their upholstery is and <laughs> never think of sex for 80 pages, <laughs> and when they think of sex also, they think in such a way, like, what was that? So I know that she's not writing a guy. It's like it's, or at least from a guy's point of view, mm. it's like I'm not convinced it's a guy, right? And this is a writer of a top level, you know. And those are the lessons for me. I I feel that see, you're you're not going to get things. I I I I, I feel that if I try to really uh, 
try to tell two complex things through a gender I have no control over. But but I know what you're saying, but I, I do ask myself, am I, am I really overthinking this too? I've not got an answer to it. But definitely it's not uh, liberating. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Last question. Uh, going back to uh, the moment when you said something about uh, uh, the, uh, one of your characters and uh, that you found it very interesting to write about moral ambiguity. What I think is, uh, or, or at least kind of, what I see that uh, it looks like there is a trend uh, uh, lately in the literature, uh, quite a strong trend of giving bad, bad guys, bad girls the mm. same depth of character as you would give the, uh, the good guys. So an antagonists are getting more and more interesting and it's, it's, uh, it's more like you don't even, uh, at the end of the day, you don't even know what, uh, whom you like more. <laughs> and uh, I think that it's a sort of, it's a road towards the, the better understanding of the, the, how to say it, the, com the complex character of each human being, that nobody is good or evil mm. uh, one extreme or another. And uh, I was thinking when, uh, when you were uh, writing your character, so you said that it was more ambiguous. What uh, did you feel the same? Did you feel that uh, there is more? How to say it? Every person is uh, is a combination of good and bad. No, in fact, uh, my problem was that uh, most people are considered good, but greater evil. Actually, which was which was what I was dealing with. That there is a very simple kind of evil who are maybe circumstantial, like Indian politicians. But I feel that a lot of sophisticated people are uh, are capable of greater evil. You know, and, and I feel that uh, people who are uh, who say one thing but they're doing it for something else. Like for example, you feel socially insecure and you try to sabotage something else for ideological reasons, let's say. You know. So I feel that uh, those things uh, are, are more dangerous. Uh, and what you're talking about is not actually a combination of good and evil. It is it, what, what it tells us is that any person, if you tell the story of any person, you like that person. And that is that is the thing about story. It is the greatness of story, actually. If you tell the story of Trump from Trump's point of view, you know, if you want, you don't want to take a moral position uh, about this guy who's like this. Okay, he states whatever he wants, and if you can write it in such a way that the New York Times editors are the clueless guys, and you'll be able to tell a story where Trump comes across as a very endearing guy. You know, so uh, so I think that is the nature of a story because as in a story where you don't like the hero, it's a doomed story. You know, you will uh, you will not hear about that story ever again. Mm -hmm. You need that connection with the character, whether they're good or or we or like bad. them, yeah, yeah, or we should like them, or we see that it, this is uh, or, or we like the weakness. Mm 
mm. you know we like weakness mm-hmm. and we if the writer is able to convey that 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 thing that evil thing as actually a human weakness we begin to uh, empathize and sympathize whatever mm. and it works uh in fact what fails is actually uh, a pretentious story you know where you you're projecting a particular thing as good and the reader is not so convinced mm. or know? bad yeah which both yeah. ways i think That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the recording. You can find more information about the Masterclass series and our regular fiction and poetry courses at internationalwriterscollective.com.